I knew this character was going to get sold into slavery, and I was stuck because I didn't want to tell the story that we usually hear about slavery. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is Sophronia Scott, author of the novel Wild, Beautiful, and Free. And yes, it's Sophronia like the character in Nina Simone's Four Women. As a native of Lorain, Ohio, the hometown of the legendary Toni Morrison, Sophronia says there was never a time she didn't know she was a writer. However, she believes you have to know exactly what you want to live your ideal literary life. When my first novel came out, I started meeting other writers who had been published. And I noticed that the people who weren't happy with the publishing process had certain goals in mind, things that they wanted, but they didn't realize that they had gone down a path that in no way was going to get them what they wanted. Sophronia was so committed to her goals, she even drove a school bus part-time while getting her MFA. She shares the one class in college that led her to change her major from pre-med to writing. Plus, how she shared her work with her father, who never learned to read. And what the classic novel Jane Eyre taught her about living life that she remixed to empower Black women. Sophronia breaks it down next when Black and Published continues. When did you know that you were a writer? It was something I'd always done since I was a child. So it it wasn't something that I thought I was. It's like that thing was always there. Like, what is that arm? What is that thing that's on your body? Well, it's my arm. It's just always been there. I think I first started, I remember copying out the words of a book when I was like seven years old because I, I loved the book so much. And I had to take it back to the library and I couldn't afford to buy books. So I owned those words. And at some point I realized that I could write my own words. I'm not sure when that was, but I just started doing that. So if you don't remember when you first started writing your own words, what's the first story that you remember writing where you were like, I've got something? It was a poem mm. and, and not a story. And it was a poem I wrote I think it might have been in junior high, for a girl, strangely enough, for a girl who did not like me. <laughs> and I don't know why I felt compelled to write her a poem, but I remember that one of the lines was just, I'm different, that's all, please accept it. And I gave that poem to that girl, and she became my friend. Aww. So, so to me, that is the one thing that, that is kind of been my my guiding light as a writer that when I write things happen and because of that I have to pay attention to that this is something that I do it seems to be powerful so I need to pay attention to this even if I don't know what it is what do you think it is about the power of your words that affects people perhaps sincerity and intimacy because it seems to me that that people tend to think that I'm writing very specifically to them. Mm. And and maybe it's because I 
I'm a letter writer. I've always loved writing letters. And in my mind, as I'm writing, I'm, I am writing to someone, even if I don't know specifically who that person is. Okay. So then knowing that your words can move people from when you were in school and always wanting to write because it was always a part of you. What did that journey look like to you making it a career? Oh, but I didn't know it could be a career. Ooh. Right? So and you have to know I'm coming from a family. I grew up in Ohio. I grew up in Lorraine, Ohio, which, yes, oh, it's Tony Morrison. You know, my dad even worked in the same steel mill that, that her dad worked in. But my dad never learned how to read. Right. So it's not like this was a thing in my family. Like to me, my goal was to get a job where I could make enough money to take care of myself. That meant being a doctor. I thought I was going to be a doctor. And when I went to college, I started off majoring in biology, but this, this yearning was still in me to write. But there was a class. It was junior year. I noticed it in the catalog. It was a second term of expository writing, and it was nonfiction, and it required that you write five pages every week. And I'm looking at this, and you got to work one-on-one with the mentor, and I'm looking at this and thinking, you know, if I wrote five pages a week, something might happen, because Mm -hmm. something always happened when I wrote, right? So I'm going to take this class, even though I'm a science major, I'm going to take this class. And I did. And... My mentor in that class said, what are you doing? Don't you realize you're good enough to get paid for this? <laughs> I said, what? How? Where? <laughs> Point me in the direction. And I switched majors. I became an English major. And eventually he introduced me to a recruiter from Time Magazine. Mm. And so I got an interview and, and they hired me out of college. I started off as a reporter researcher just a month after graduation. And and I tell people they raised me as a journalist. <laughs> so yeah, so I stayed in the company for 15 years and and learned, I learned my craft. So we're going to go forward, but I got to go back because yeah. Miss Sophronia, you don't look that old. <laughs> and you said that your, your dad did not know how to read. And mm. I'm, I'm assuming he was born in the 1900s, like toward the, the middle of the century, yes? Not the middle. My dad was okay. born in 1919. Wow. My father would have been over 100 if he were alive today. So, so yeah, he had his children late. And my siblings and I, it's, it's kind of like we are born of a different experience because of that, right? Because his family, he was born and raised on a farm in Mississippi. He came north with the migration, mm. right? So, so yeah, it was a tough upbringing. Okay, because I was like, we can't overlook this detail. Was he alive to see your writing in print, or did he ever want to read your writing once you became of age? You know, you asked about my name. I am named after his mother. Mm. So when I got my first bylines in Time Magazine, he couldn't read the words, but he recognized the name because he knows what his mother's name looked like. He knows what the last name Scott looks like. It's his name. So he would sit in the parking lot and he would have copies of Time Magazine, and he would show it to people who would walk by because they would already come up to the van because, you know, I went to Harvard. So they would see the sticker on the van, you had a child at Harvard. And and he would say, yeah, my, my daughter writes for this magazine. And he would take it out and show it to them. 
So that that was really a wonderful thing because you know he didn't know what I did mm-hmm. until I finally got those first bylines. He he just could not conceive of it, but but once he had something in his hands, yeah, <laughs> he got that, it. That's beautiful. Yeah. When did you know that? Okay, journalism is great. Writing these stories for magazines is great, but I want to write a book. When was that? Yeah, um, toward the end of the, gosh, like 98, 99, like, like it wasn't that I wanted to write a book. I just started thinking, what do I want to write about, right? What do I have to say? And I wasn't sure what that would be. I wasn't considering fiction because at the time, my, my mentor all the way back at college had told me, you know, I... I don't want you to start a novel too soon because I don't want you to try to start it, get frustrated, and then not write again. I experimented a lot. But the thing that happened was the change from going to Time to People magazine because I started interviewing different people, including actors. And I I used to be deeply involved in, in the theater when I was in college. So this was like a gift coming back to me. And I remember I interviewed Keith Hamilton Cobb, who's this beautiful actor who used to be on All My Children, had this long flowing dreadlocks. And I asked him who else could I interview about him? And and he told me about this acting coach. And this acting coach and I became friends. And I fell in with this whole group of actors who suddenly became my friends. And I'm going to their performances and listening to them deliver monologues. And this one actress friend of mine was kind of frustrated in the monologue she'd been delivering. And she said, I I just wish I could do something that was fierce and female. And, and I said, you know, I think I can write that for you. Mm. And I wrote a monologue for her. <laughs> and it was just, it was so life-giving being around these creative people. And that's when I, I started the germs of, of this novel started to come together for me. It's like, you know, I I think I want to write this novel. And that's when I started working on it. And that eventually became my first novel, All I Need to Get By. Okay. So that's, you know, early 2000s. Yes. And you have two novels and three nonfiction books. Yeah. So what has your publishing process been like coming from such esteemed magazine positions with time and even people and then being embedded with a community of artists, did you find your publishing route to be easy as you began working on your novels and your nonfiction works? Well, first of all, we'll have to talk about that break between my first and my second novel, right? Because it it was a break of like 13 years between those mm. books, okay? But going back to the earlier part of the publishing process, I was fortunate enough to find an agent very quickly and, and totally by chance. I met the the head of the company um, at a college reunion event. And the woman who eventually became my agent was an assistant in that firm. And she, and it's like, we've grown up in the business together. She's always been my agent. But when that first book came out and I I had the book came out and my baby, (laughs) I had my son in that first book in the same year. (laughs) So that was kind of crazy. But at that time, I had left People Magazine at that point. I was working on my own. I was an entrepreneur. And I began to develop this business where, you know, I'm a trained life coach. So I started coaching people around books. And I developed this whole system of coaching entrepreneurs to write books to promote their businesses. 
I taught workshops around that. I wrote a book called Doing Business by the Book. I was ghostwriting. So I'm helping to support my family and I'm doing all this work and the business is a success, but I'm not writing my books. I was trying to work on a second novel, but I'm ghostwriting other people's books. I was doing all of this other writing that was not mine. And I was frustrated by that. So you think about that, that's from 2004 to 2011. So that's about seven years that I'm doing that and trying to figure out how do I turn around the ship? I'm thinking about maybe I need to get an MFA. Like, you know, what do I need to do to to stop doing this? And in June of 2011, one of my sisters died. Mm. And Theo was not even a year younger than I am. We were Irish twins. So we were the same age for two weeks every year. And suddenly she's gone. And I was I was grieving and I said, this has to stop because we don't know how long we have here. Writing is my God-given gift and I need to do the thing that I'm meant to do. And so I'm thinking, okay, maybe the one thing I can do is get a transcript. I can ask for my transcripts and somehow I'll get into a program. Um, I learned about low residency MFA programs. I finally applied for and got into the MFA program at, at Vermont College of Fine Arts. And I stopped doing the business. I learned how to drive a school bus. I was a substitute school bus driver for a year, but I, I was serious. I was serious. I don't play. <laughs> this is This is going to happen. I need to be writing my work. And so that's what I did. So I started in that MFA program. And that turned out to be, you know, such a life-changing experience because that program taught me how to wield my magic. Mm. This is what I do to understand craft, to deeply understand the language of, of what writing is, to read way more than I was reading before, and to understand creative nonfiction. Because even though I was a journalist, I didn't realize that that I could be writing nonfiction as well as fiction. And and there was a friend there I met who encouraged me to do that. And so so that's why now I have I'm publishing both fiction and nonfiction books. It was the right thing to do. It it was the right thing for me. I think I'm astounded by the lack of commitment. It doesn't surprise me, but I think the depth of it. Like the whole driving a school bus. Like I said, I would do some crazy things for writing. I don't know if I would drive a school bus. But like it's that kind of commitment that it not only fascinates me, but it makes me wonder, and I guess this is the next question, have the rewards been enough for the sacrifice? And I don't mean just like actual like awards and accolades and titles and and monetary things like those things are great but has the the payoff in having your books out been worth the sacrifice oh yes especially with with this most recent book because wild beautiful and free has been a story that's been on my heart for a very long time and it's thrilling to me to be able to tell this story that I hope will become a a model for other women, because this story is inspired by a classic that I read as a young teen, a story that taught me how to think about how to move through my life with agency. And it's like, okay, I want a story like that 
with a woman of color as the protagonist, right? To, to show a woman of color moving through her life, determined to express her identity and who she is, and to be able to produce work like that and to get it published, that's exciting to me. That is absolutely thrilling. Yes. Amen. So let's talk specifically about Wild, Beautiful, and Free. Mm-hmm. Because I saw that well, all of your titles are traditionally published, but this book is published by Lake Union, which is a traditional imprint of Amazon. And so I know that's still like a newish kind of concept in like the book publishing landscape. What has that process and journey been like with all the contention between like Amazon being Amazon and then like your traditional big five? Well, but but you're using the word traditional. Yes. Right? So really <laughs> it's not different. Mm. Right. It is it is the same process. You know, an editor acquired my book. They paid in, in advance, right? They work in exactly the same way. The only difference is they have access to certain channels to put the book out in front of people because they are Amazon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is interesting to me that because they are Amazon, I feel there's there's less of a big lift on me in terms of trying to get the word out there about the book because they have the ability to do that way more than I can. But I do love being able to still talk about the book and to do the things that I do in social media. You know, my editor has been absolutely wonderful to to work with. So it's it has not been a process that has been less than Right. This is this is exceeded my expectations. I asked that question and I only had one other author who's published with a with an Amazon imprint, uh, Lisa Williamson Rosenberg, who published with Little A. Uh, mm-hmm. Her novel Embers on the Wind came out uh, last year. But I was at a retreat and I posed the question, is there a way for Amazon to work with the other traditional publishers to bolster the voice of of writers and specifically, you know, marginalized writers of colors, own voices, things like that. And a lot of people kind of balked at that idea, but I was thinking of it in the terms of like when Apple kind of partnered with the music industry and started iTunes and said, you know, if a song is only 99 cents, that could help cut down on pirating and things like that. And that has kind of led to the entire streaming era. And I wonder if that is a pathway in publishing, because first of all, Amazon has the ability to pay its writers. So specifically writers of color. So that could be more enticing. But then I know that there are barriers to Amazon published books because it is Amazon, which seems wholly unfair. So mm-hmm. I feel like Amazon has this like black mark on it because of uh, what it does. And yes. so even though it has traditional imprints and can be really an avenue for authors to get their work out and be compensated well for it, it's like traditional publishing is holding itself at a higher bar and mm-hmm. saying it's still not good enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's it's weird to me. Okay. But, so yeah. so here's the thing, and and this is actually the thing that got me into book coaching in the first place. When my first novel came out, I started meeting other writers who had been published, and I noticed that the people who weren't happy with the publishing process had certain goals in mind, things that they wanted, but they didn't realize that they had gone down a path 
that in no way was going to get them what they wanted. So the thing that I'm always talking about, I want every writer to understand why they do the thing that they do Mm. and what they want to get out of it. So if you want to be on a New York Times bestseller list, if there are certain awards that you're going after, you have to understand these things so that you can make the choices. Mm. So if you want these things, then maybe, you know, you wouldn't want to publish with Amazon. But to me, it's about the reader, right? I know that I can reach more readers if I work with a certain publisher, and this is going to be a perfect match, right? I want someone who's going to care about my work, who's going to to put it out there in a certain way. Obviously, you know, Amazon is doing that. So my reasons and goals are not going to be another writer's reasons and goals. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. As I see more of the Amazon imprint books coming out, I always wonder what that experience is like. And like, I never am asking anyone to trash their publisher, but Mm -hmm. I do know that those tensions exist in the industry. And Mm -hmm. because it's happening in real time, they haven't been resolved. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who she's been published by other companies and she usually goes to book festivals. And when she started publishing with Amazon, invites were not available to her anymore. Mm. So yeah, things like that can happen. Wow. But we're here today to talk about wild, beautiful, and free. (laughs) (laughs) Let's keep the conversation going. Can you read a little excerpt from the book and then we can get into it? Oh, okay. In Wild, Beautiful, and Free, Sophronia Scott's heroine, Jeanette, is a beloved mixed-race child being raised by her white father on his Louisiana plantation. But when he dies, Jeanette is forced to face every cruelty of the antebellum South and decide whether she will hold on to hate or return to love once she escapes to find her way home. Here's Sophronia. I'll read the prologue. That's easiest to do. My papa, Jean Bevin, the owner of 50,000 acres of the finest land in Louisiana, used to say a man falling downstairs was one of the saddest sights you could ever behold. Not only could you be certain the one falling would feel his body battered like the devil having his day on your behind, but there was also the fact that the person was surely humbled because he'd been unable to master this simple creation man-made to overcome the ups and downs of the earth. Mr. Christian Robichaud Colchester looked like that when I first saw him in the winter of 1860. He tumbled and spun like a hayrake falling down the front stairs inside Fortitude Mansion. His eyes caught me in one hot moment as he whirled. Black marbles they were, and they flashed with shock like everything he believed about the world had betrayed him with a snap of a twig. Eyes that looked like they had been somewhere and had returned to find me and were asking, would I help? Now I know I couldn't have seen his plea in that quick of time, but that was how it seemed. Papa's words came to me, and I felt sorry for the man rolling down those stairs. I rushed to the staircase and stood there. Never mind, I was probably two heads shorter than the huge beast falling. I was, and still am, nothing but a bit of a soul in slight packaging. My body didn't have any sense of what my mind was making it do. 
I stood there and let him land on me. Air fled my chest, and a tingling sensation sprang up and down my spine. I thought I'd never breathe again, but I heard him coughing, like he was too full of air, like he had taken all my breath from me. I think about that moment when I try to figure out when it all changed. When did he reach out like he was falling all over again and grab my heart with both hands and hold on like his life depended on it? When did I start holding on with him? He knows that I did, because that's what's making him so bold to ask what he's asking of me now. He wouldn't have done it otherwise. And by the same vein, I wouldn't be sitting here thinking about saying yes, because that's how much of me he has. And I'm thinking it wouldn't be a great thing to let the rest of me go, too. It's just like standing in front of those stairs again. Can I break this fall? Inside that man is every notion of what I know about myself. He stands tall, like there's a force inside him, drawing him up to his full height. And that same force makes me feel large as well. Our eyes on the world are great and unyielding, like we've seen too much to close them now. We say the words we want to say and don't care about the consequences. I know a bigger hell comes of keeping your mouth shut. We're that much alike. And yet he doesn't know what he's asking of me. For what he wants, I'd have to deny myself in a way that would dismantle every aspect of my humanity. And his too, but that doesn't seem to concern him. Perhaps because he's already done it for so long. Maybe that's why I've loved him. He's burned himself down to this purity, and it's all I can see of him. I can't see anything else. Jeanette, the only people who would give a damn are the ones who give a damn for you, he said. You don't have people like that in this world. No, not in this world. Because I do think of Papa. That's what gives me pause. That and the love of my creator, my Alpha and my Omega. Anyone might look at me and wonder how, in all my strangeness, I could demand love of any human being. I know I'm unusual to look at, with pale skin telling one story about myself, and tight coils of light brown hair telling another. And I'm hard in ways most admired women are soft. I used to think my half-sister Callista imprinted the world like a cloud. But my papa's my excuse for everything I'm about to tell you. I was born of great love, and Papa bore me well in that love for as long as he could. I was a beloved child. I think I knew that before I knew anything else. So now I can't settle for anything less than such love. That's just the truth of who I am. Thank you. Yeah. So we have a, like, 19th century romance, civil war, Christian fiction kind of story all wrapped up in one. <laughs> and it's a retelling of Jane Eyre. <laughs> yeah. Madame. That is a lot. <laughs> Where did this come from? Like <laughs> oh. I read Jane Eyre when I was 13. And she taught me that I could make my way in the world. And, and I wanted to tell that story. There's that, number one. 
But number two, there's also, it's funny you mentioned the Christian aspect. There's a part in Jane Eyre where she realizes, and she even says that Rochester has become her God, Mm. that that he is standing between her and, and her maker. And that has always fascinated me. That has always fascinated me. And and I have a powerful faith of, of my own to express. So that's going to come through in anything that I write. It's just such just there. But I wanted to create a character that looked more like me, she could say, because I wanted other girls to have that same experience, right? Girls who can't connect with a white character from the 1800s. So to have that experience here, to to bring it home, so to speak, to the United States, and to to put it, you know, to have a similar character who has no place in the world and yet can still have a strong identity, right? And this is another wonderful reason I love my editor on Amazon. They understood this book, and in the front cover, right? You know, I was I was I had these words in in an email, and my editor grabbed it and put it in the top of this book. It says, "When the world doesn't want you, you must learn to want yourself." Ooh, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> because okay. that's that's what I believe, and I'm I'm laying this down. That gives like a whole another layer of context for the book, yeah. because like I knew it was a retelling of Jane Eyre, and you know I get all the politics going into it. But there was a certain point in the book where I was like, "There's slavery, but there's not like slavery in the way that you would think of like I guess a slave story. Like the horrors mm-hmm. are there, but it's not the central fact, and yeah. so." A part of me almost felt like it wasn't so much whitewashed, but I think if the author had been white writing it, I would have had like a real strong side eye, right? Yeah. Yeah. But because of what all the context that you just gave, it does make me wonder, well, because this is a part of slave stories too, right? Every Black person I feel like I'm about to be dragged for saying this, (laughs) but, you know, every black person who came through slavery as horrible as it was, doesn't have the same story of a specific type of trauma that we've come to expect, I guess. And so even though Jeanette has the privileged life of being the daughter of the owner before she is then sold into slavery, but held up because she has the lighter skin, it's still grounded in truth. I don't know if you've wrapped your head around what kind of criticism could come, but like I've been grappling with that since I finished the book because I'm like, it's grounded in fact, it's grounded in history. It, it's it's just doing a lot. I don't know. Okay, no, here, the question. here's the thing. <laughs> I was stuck writing those parts of the book for months. For months, I knew this character was going to get sold into slavery and I was stuck. And it, I didn't know why until, I, I, I can't remember if I was watching, which movie I was watching, but it, but it occurred to me that the reason I was stuck is because I didn't want to tell the the story that we usually hear about slavery, especially the escape piece, right? That the, the running through the woods, dogs chasing you. And there was, an, I guess, a kind of anger in me about that. Mm. And and then the two things came up. I went to New Orleans for the first time. And I went to the, the Whitney Plantation. 
and there was a art exhibit about these slaves who had led a rebellion and the leaders of that rebellion when when they were caught had been beheaded and there was this whole art exhibit there and two things that i learned that while the time i was there is that number 1 way more slaves escaped or tried to escape than we usually hear about in in the narrative of slavery number 1 number 2 there were way more rebellions than we were told about and that felt so empowering to me, right? I was struck by how much I I was empowered by that. And then I had this book called Runaway Slaves, and I just started flipping through it. And I found the story of the crafts, right? And there's actually a new book that's out right now about, about Ellen and William Craft, who escaped slavery by having her pose as a white man and her husband as her slave. And I found about their story in this book. And again, I felt empowered. I said, okay, that is a story I can tell, right? And I, I thought the same thing, that, that wow, people are just going to think that that this is, like you said, a whitewashed version of slavery or whatever. Like, no, I'm telling a story, because especially since this is not the major part of the story, but I'm going to tell something that is empowering to me. I want to, to show the energy and, and the, the anger that comes out of Jeanette from her experience but also someone telling her, you can't let this change you, right? You have to hold on to who you are, right? That was what I wanted to focus on. How do you hold on to yourself when the absolute worst happens? And those are the characters who, to me, were doing the rebellions, who were constantly trying to escape, right? And and this is where that mindset comes from, where you demand your humanity, mm. right? Thank so. you for for saying that. And I think maybe what was flaring up in me and what we don't really talk about in the Black community is how colorism gives us so many different stories. And so I think maybe for me, I was looking at it with a slight side eye because I'm knowing I'm a brown-skinned Black woman. So like that doesn't ring true for me, right? It, it, I, I I can't relate. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you are not a brown skinned black woman, but you are still a black woman, and your story still has to be told. And so there were in in that century, in this time period, in this world that you've created, this is a story that does exist and and is grounded in historical fact. And so I I feel like even that adds another layer of complexity to the work. Is that you know. I mean, it's historical fiction. So it's like, you know, you have the colorism, you have slavery, you have the Civil War, you have all of these historic figures that uh, your main character is is encountering. But it's, it's about her fighting for what she wants out of life at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. Where did you get, I guess, that audacity to give that to this woman in 19th century America when we barely are expected to have that kind of audacity in the 21st century as Black women. Uh, because that's exactly what I'm saying. We need to have that audacity, right? We need to stand up for ourselves. As, you know, when I was in high school, I, you know, I'm I am Black, right? I'm Black, but I am yellow-skinned, like the Nina Simone <laughs> character. And I was made to feel out of place because I was not Black enough for the Black kids, and I definitely wasn't white. Right. So I was in that weird in between place, but I could have sunk really low 
if I didn't have some kernel of self-esteem that made me stand up for myself and, and want good things for myself and, and go after those things. And I see this all the time where there's a choice to be made of, will I let anger, will I let someone's prejudice of me take me down a road that is not mine? And I want people to be aware that this choice is happening all the time, all the time. Barack Obama had the, the phrase, audacious hope. We also have to have an audacious love for ourselves, mm. right? To be able to say, you know, okay, you may, you may think this of me, but this is not who I am. And I will, I will have compassion for you and your ignorance that you think this, but it's not going to stop me from enjoying my life from from bringing light into this world, right? Um, Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston was given a really hard time because they felt her work wasn't literary enough. But she was standing up for the fact that, look, our lives are not all about tragedy, right? We love, we have children, we dance, right? I love that, that title of the book, I Love Myself When I'm Laughing, right? So I believe she was standing up for for our humanity right and and i'm gladly standing on her shoulders and following in her footsteps to to tell stories that say know who you are know who you are and and live in that mm. so i want to switch to a speed round in the game before i let you go so okay. what is your favorite book <laughs> besides jane Eyre. Um, <laughs> I love Pride and Prejudice. Who is your favorite author? Oh, Toni Morrison. Who is your favorite artist? Kehinde Wiley. What do you think is the best book to movie adaptation? The Lord of the Rings series. If Wild, Beautiful, and Free gets the movie treatment, who would you <laughs> want to play Jeanette and Mr. Colchester? Oh, goodness. That's hard. Because when you think about it, who are the biracial actors? Right? Ooh. Ooh. Right? <laughs> right? Not only these, are they biracial, are... they have to be able to pass. pass. Exactly. Right? That could that could be this this uh. That's a task. Yes, it is. And 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 whoever, right? So you have to be really careful because people could be like, oh no, that person, that person is really white or something, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but you know, that also caused to attention the fact that maybe we need to have more actors like this in the I realm. I just thought of it, yeah. but it would never happen. Meghan Markle. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And wouldn't that be, you know, just the same idea of, of a woman trying to live her identity? <laughs> I don't know if Meghan's going to ever hear this because I'm in my closet right now, but Meghan, girl, this is your role. <laughs> yeah. You want to go back yeah. to acting. This is the um, one. Come get it. <laughs> it's your whole production deal at Netflix, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and I feel that that is her spirit as well, right? Wild, beautiful, and free, right? <laughs> yeah. We didn't hit a whole other part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Try to go back. If money were no object, where would you go? What would you do? And where would you live? There would have to be a river nearby because I've been recently learning how to fly fish and I just 
would love to be able to just go out of my house and and go down to the river and and fish. So it would be a place like that. And I often wonder if that place is somewhere in either England or Italy, um, Michigan, because I'm I'm thinking about a move to Michigan. But it has to be a place with water. What brings you joy? Watching my son in his anime costumes. He's into anime. He's a college student, but um, he goes to anime conferences. So watching his development of self happen and to know that he has a strong sense of self, (laughs) that's exciting to me. Um, Watching episodes of The West Wing, because that's such good writing. Good writing makes me so happy. But also those characters just remind me of people I used to work with and people I went to school with. Being with my classmates, which I'm still very much connected to, we have a reunion coming up. Um, Being with people, you know, people I care deeply about with friends, with family, like there's an energy there and it's, it just sparks. Right. And then of course, writing, right. Mm -hmm. To, to be in, in the story and, and to the point where everything else has fallen away. That's, that's a moment of joy. And what brings you peace? Being outside um, in the woods or by water meditation, being in the present moment, just knowing that, that's just here now, right now. And there's nothing else to worry about because everything in this moment is absolutely fine. Awesome. So our game is called Rewriting the Classics. Mm. Name one book you wished you would have written. Oh, Sula. Toni Morrison's Sula. Right? Talk about a woman who knows herself and, and audacious, right? Mm. Audacious. You know, I don't care. <laughs> I am Sula. I am fabulous and I'm going to go live how I'm going to live. Right. That's exciting to me. Love that book. Name one book where you want to change the ending and how would you do it? Hmm. There's a book called The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And it's, it's, I just feel that the way that book ended was not a payoff for the reader for as long as it's a long book. And for as long as the reader was with those characters and with that story, I felt that it didn't tie up its stories very well. And so I can't tell you specifically how I would have rewrite it, but but I would have honored the characters and the reader more mm. in pulling the threads together for that book. Name a book that you think is overrated or overtaught and why. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's casting shade. <laughs> they could be dead. <laughs> they, they could be dead. Oh, goodness. So I'm not sure what would be, because there are a lot of older books that I, I, I do love, like A Tale of Two Cities. And some people would say a book like A Tale of Two Cities would be that book. That, you know, why do we still teach that? And it's so boring. And there's all of this description. But... It is such a character study, right? And I still, I read that book in high school. I've not read that book since. And yet I'm still inspired by the moment that Sidney Carton is walking through the streets, basically preparing himself to give up his life. And the thought that the thought process, the way he keeps um, repeating to himself, I'm the resurrection and life, right? (laughs) 
to me, it's like that that book is everything. I mean, I, I guess I'm fascinated by books that teach you how to think, right? To take you into the mind of someone. Just here's how you get from point A to the point B. And so to me, as long as a, as a book is teaching that, I can't say it'll never oh, be we should overrated. Be exactly. It'll never be overrated. Overrated. I think that's that's more likely. I think books can be overrated, not the classics, but but books now. That's why I'm kind of reluctant Woo! to say. Right. I would just let the, that question go. Yeah, there are books now that are, I think are overrated. <laughs> like, what is this? Ooh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Final question. Yeah. It's fine. When you're dead and gone and among the ancestors, what would you like someone to write about the words and work that you left behind? That I read Sophronia Scott and she changed my life. She made me feel better about myself. She made me think that I could do the things I did not think I could do. Mm. Thank you, Sophronia. You're welcome. Big thank you to Sophronia Scott for being here today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out Sophronia's latest novel, Wild, Beautiful, and Free, out now from Lake Union Publishing. And if you're not following Sophronia, check her out on the socials. She's at Sophronia on Twitter and Sophronia.Scott on Instagram. And Sophronia is spelled S-O-P-H-F-R-O-N-I-A. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Sophronia about what she wants readers to take away from her novel. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holla at y'all next week when our guests will be Yvette Lisa Angelovu, author of the short story collection, Drinking from Graveyard Wells. I'm always fascinated with how white people can go someplace and discover something. And I was thinking about that with the founding of Lyft, because, you know, Lyft's back home where this kind of like community ride share. And it was a beautiful thing because we didn't have a consistent public transportation system and then the founder of Lyft went to Zimbabwe and you know discovered this <laughs> form of ride sharing so thinking about how this African indigenous thing was made into a capitalist company that's next week on Black and Published I'll talk to you then peace <laughs> <laughs>